he's really happy to support a lot of that. And we always find him asking really difficult questions, but it's done with the intent of really making sure that we, we've done our homework and that um, we're giving everything a fair go. And yeah, he's been, he's been a fantastic advocate since he's come in. Hello, good morning or good evening, wherever you are, and delighted to have you back. And if it's your first time, well, you've joined us for a really special episode today. Now, most of the time, we're talking to people building new technology companies or bringing innovative ways to doing things for long-established companies. And those are great, but what about the buyer? What do the insurers really want? Well, if you are head of innovation and investment in a major global insurance company, then you certainly have no shortage of people trying to sell you stuff already. And with each of our episodes now getting thousands of listeners each week, I'm sure our guest today is going to get a lot more inbound queries. So I'm delighted that James Orchard, CEO of QBE Ventures, is able to join me, give up some of his time to reveal what he and his team and actually many of his colleagues across all of QBE are getting up to and how they work with and invest in InsurTech and beyond. Well, if you're keen on unraveling the world of insurance and want to know in particular what kind of companies that are really making a difference and what a leading insurer is looking for with those organizations, then this one is definitely for you. Now, a warning, if you are plugging in for your run or your commute, well, there's so much in here, we left the recorder running for a little bit extra this time. So please do hang in there to the end. Uh, definitely worth listening. Maybe take another turn around the block. James, I love having all our guests on the podcast, but I've got to say, this is a particularly special moment. We're in Spike's new podcast studio in Shoreditch. You've come up here, we're doing it in person. Uh, I know you are a bit of an enthusiast for the podcast, but, but more importantly, really impressed with what's going on with QBE Ventures and looking forward to hearing more about it. So thanks for coming up and joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And this is uh, my first ever podcast. And so... I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone, if I'm completely honest, but to be here in, in Spike Studio, I'm really honoured. Well, I know it's not the first podcast through lack of people asking you, uh, so particularly grateful for you to do that. And talking about out of your comfort zone, we're recording at lunchtime, so you haven't had lunch yet, uh, but also it's pretty cold here just in the UK and, and you spend most of your time in Sydney. I know you're over here for a couple of years, so I'm sure you and your family are, are wondering what you're doing over here, freezing when it's middle of summer in Sydney. Yeah, we, we moved over to the UK, well, it's almost a year now, the beginning of, of 2023. And the plan at this stage is to head back sometime towards the end of the year, maybe early next year. Sydney will always be home. And, you know, as as a dad to two young kids, it was always tricky to understand, you know, how the move would impact, would impact the kids. But they've been so resilient. They've loved it. As you know, the kids are huge fans of the podcast. I drive to school and I think one of my proudest parenting moments was when I managed to convince the daughter on the merits of listening to the podcast over the Frozen soundtrack. I know they're going to be stoked to hear dad's voice on the podcast and should give us at least a couple of downloads, that's for sure. Well, they're going to be very proud and we're not proud, so we'll take our listeners wherever we can get them from. So Gabrielle and Henry, thank you for joining us again. Please do spread the word to your, your friends. I know your dad's going to be a fantastic guest because there's so many interesting things going on. Well, let's talk a little bit about QBE now, James. So QBE Insurance Group, you're one of the world's top 20 insurance and reinsurance companies. You've got locations in 26 countries. Great to see that you grew by 6% last year for an established company. That means a lot. Looks like you've got over 20 billion US dollars of premium headquarters in Australia, but you've got major operations in the US and Europe. And James, you are CEO of QBE Ventures. And you've got a great website, by the way, showing the companies 
not as a company's invested in actually, but also why you're invested in them, which is really helpful. Your average investment size is about two to five million dollars. You've got 12 companies, I think, in your portfolio just now. We know a number of those, including Clara, Saitora, Demex, and Geosite. Well, James, welcome. And anything in there either got wrong or missed out that's critical before we start talking? No, 100% correct. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. Now, you yourself have got a bit of a history working for insurers. You're another major Australian insurer, IAG. But you moved to QB in 2020. What was it that took you across to QB? Yeah, I had, I had a fantastic five years at IAG. My background was traditionally corporate strategy and, and M&A, and, and I ended up in a strategy role at IAG. We were sort of started crafting a narrative around what digital disruption meant, and before too long, I was, I was running a product innovation team, and that was a fantastic opportunity to be able to work on innovative new products and be able to take them to market and work at a pace that's free from legacy. And um, the opportunity came up to join QBE just before COVID and just before lockdown. Being able to come into QBE, you know, build on the strong foundations they'd already set up with ventures, but really dig deep and establish that capability on a more global basis. Three years on, I've, I've loved every minute of it. We're doing really well and yeah, no regrets at all. Now, a question we ask technology companies, and I'm going to ask it to you as well. Often people make decisions, certainly strategic decisions like to invest in your case or in ventures. There's ultimately one driving factor that's going to influence the decision and the success of it. So if I kind of ask you the same question, I'd ask a technology company, what problem is QBE Ventures solving for, uh, for QBE? It's certainly the right question to ask. A key component of any successful corporate venture unit or any successful innovation unit is you need to have a clear reason to exist, right? You need to have a clear role in the organization strategy and you need to be able to articulate that really quickly. So, you know, at the time, like most large multinational carriers, I think everyone within QBE would agree that there had been to that date uh, an underinvestment in technology in certain parts of the business. There was a lot of legacy. And when we had modernized the business, the pockets that had done that, we'd done in a way that was very sort of build first, very inwardly focused. And the executive at the board at the time were obviously seeing, you know, a lot of development in the startup space. They could witness the progress those companies were making and just the sheer pace of, of change in the technology. You know, it became quite clear that we can't just rely on what we've done in the past. We can't just rely on, on the success and our size. We need to be able to recognize the shifting needs of our customers. We need to be able to move quickly. We need to be able to adapt. And so they wanted to ensure that QBE had the capability to look outside the organization, to be able to cut through the noise and make sense of, of what was going on, and then to be able to bring those opportunities into the group. And, and so that's the reason why we exist. We had been doing that when I came in for a couple of years. We'd made some really, really good investments in some companies that we're still partnering with now and, and, and from a financial return have done really well. I think the appetite at that time was then to go, okay, what can we do? You know, how can we do more? Right? How can we dig deeper with these companies? How can we create you know, a much closer strategic partnership? How can we start to realize much greater strategic value? And more importantly, how can we help QBE become more startup ready and a better startup partner? So very simply, our role is to accelerate the delivery of QBE's strategic priorities by bringing the outside in. I'll come back to that in a minute. One question I just want to ask you, you mentioned there about financial success. So is that through you've actually exited on some of the companies or they've they've been acquired or you've actually managed to release some of the, 
the investment in the companies or is that more just marking them to the market in terms of some other sort of independent variables but not necessarily actually recouping the the, the, the pure returns from them? We've had one or two exits, albeit quite small now. It was more referring to the mark-to-market and, and you know, they've, they've obviously gone on to do subsequent rounds and raised at, uh, raised at higher valuations. Their revenues are growing and, and then they're doing really, really well. Certainly, these companies are going from strength to strength, but uh, yeah, it was more than around they've got so much talent, they've got so much IP, this can start to apply some of their technology, some of that to other areas of our business. And how do we start to think along those terms? How do we start to think about um, driving that greater strategic value rather than simply making the investment and then just holding that until exit? Yes, yeah, so I wanted to drill into that a little bit. So when I look at it, it seems to me, and this is on your website very helpfully, you essentially got two sides of your business. So you're some cases you're actually building the technology from the ground up and you're working with people to do that. In other cases, you're investing in, in the businesses themselves. We can talk a bit more about the investment side in, this, in a moment. But here's a question I've got. There's over $40 billion now been invested in SureTech going back, I think, since about 2016. Why is it that QBE still needs to be building this? Isn't, is there something failing in the kind of broader world where that money is not being deployed or people are not being creative enough and it's honestly a bad thing to build it internally. It's just, does, to me, slightly drawn to question, why would you need to do that if you can't find companies to partner with with all that investment out there? In most instances, yes, I think a lot of the time the technology exists and and it's ready to use and we can be a, an effective partner and and derive value that way. But there are some instances where where we find that something doesn't exist or we want to bring a number of technologies together. And in fact, the build is, is not so much building core technology, but building a value proposition or building a new business that might leverage those, those technologies coming together. We consciously set up QBE Ventures as a multi-pronged corporate venture unit. So by that, I mean, we have a number of mechanisms at our disposal that give us, I feel, a better shot at realizing that strategic value I mentioned before. So we don't limit ourselves, as I said, to purely investments. Okay, we do have the ability to support the business and engage in just pure partnerships, but we do have that ability to bring various stakeholders together to look at new commercial relationships like joint ventures and sort of co-create and build. What we wanted to do was move away very much from a, oh, hey, here's a piece of technology. How's it going to work in the organization to focus very much on the business problem or the customer problem that the division has. We spend a lot of that time listening. We help shape their strategy across horizons. And we understand, first of all, the problem and help them validate the problem. And then when we have a clear view of that, we can then start to either look into our portfolio, look into the startup landscape to say, okay, who's out there solving for this problem and who's doing it really, really well? And then when we've narrowed that down to the preferred partner or the, or the preferred startup that we want to work with, we've then got a number of options open to us around how we maximize that value. So for example, in some instances, we might see the software works fantastic off the shelf. It's ready to go. It's got a, a number of integrations already. We can just consume that and it's just a simple partnership that we can support the business uh, execute on. There may be instances where we see not only that, but further use case for their technology across the organization. So whether that's in new regions, whether that's in new product lines, whether that's taking it and pointing it and doing something slightly differently. And if we see that we can work with them, collaborate with them to have a look at those alternative use cases, then for us, that's normally enough to justify an investment. And if they're raising and they want QBE ventures on their cap table, then we'll look at an investment. And then, as I said, in that there's a rare instance where we see startups that have a great technology, but it's not quite what we're looking for. And so therefore, we can then have a look at those alternative commercial structures and have a look at what we might be able to build together. But it all centers really around wanting to have that deeper 
that longer term, more strategic partnership where there is mutual benefit for both for both organizations. And you touched on a theme there that's a, a big thing for me, which is that what's that problem you're trying to solve? And actually that putting it down to like, what is the one problem you're trying to solve when you go out into the business units, which you know, we can often sort of try and layer in too many things to, to justify doing some action. But I, I, I've certainly been learning that you get one crisp problem, then you can you can focus on that. We'll talk a bit about the underwriters in a minute. But I'm sure your family, they're like my family, and I think many people who work in insurance go like, what do you actually do all day? You've got a team of 11, including Simon Pink and Peter Killian in London, who we, we know well and have been great supporters of us. So for the benefit of our families or your your colleagues' families, what do you do all day? <laughs> my Yeah, my wife asks me that a lot. And I just say, I'm an ideas person. That's literally what I say, because it's too difficult to explain otherwise. But we have a team set up. It's got a global mandate. Um, as you said, there's there's 11 folks and they represent quite a unique set of backgrounds. And so whether that's consulting or technology, you know, corporate development, underwriting, whatever that might be, we've, we've got sort of all of those represented. And while everyone in the team would contribute to things like due diligence and scouting and thesis development, we've really set the team up in, in two areas. So there's the investing side of things and then there's the partnering side of things. So on the investment side, we have three team members who who run with that. It's led by Dan, based out of New York. And they really do everything from the investment process as well as sort of the operation of the fund. So we have a, a $100 million US fund. Uh, it's an evergreen fund, meaning that we can recycle the capital back into the fund and, and when we do make an exit, we can reinvest those returns. And we deploy that capital predominantly directly into startups, but we also look in, uh, invest into funds as well. And we're multi-stage. So while we can do everything from seed right up to Series C investment, we do tend to focus on the Series A. And we're an active investor. So we don't just throw the money over the fence and, and keep quiet. It all comes, as I said, back to that strategic value. And we find the best way to achieve that strategic value is to to get our hands dirty on the tools, to to really help the startups and advise them and be that sort of active investor that can help move their business into the next stage and, and help to scale. So that's the investing side of things. Obviously, with that, we'll have board seats and, and, and whatnot so that keeps us busy. The other members of the team, the vast bulk of the team is really then centered on, on partnering. So not only partnering into the organization, so working with the divisions and, and our underwriters and our claims teams to understand those problems and to work with them, but then to work with our portfolio companies and, and effectively bridge them back into the organization. And a lot of what they do is, is not just project-specific activity, but they also then try to really work on the processes to make QBE a better partner. So if that's working with some of the enabling functions across the business, like legal, cybersecurity technology, we really want to be a good partner, which means we have to move quickly. We've designed much faster processes to onboard. We've got funds available to move straight into proof of concepts and pilots. It's certainly something that we're quite proud of in the sense of being able to sort of stand that up and then be of service and assist, assist our portfolio companies once we've made the investment. Well, there we go. So family of uh, Orchard family, the Pink family and the Killian family and everybody else in your team. Now you know why your uh, your uh, family <laughs> members are so, are so busy all the time. There's an awful lot going on in there. And actually, James, thank you for mentioning what an evergreen fund is, because I realized when you said that, I've seen the term and I never really stopped to actually say, what does that mean? So now I actually properly understand what an evergreen fund is. So if no one else is learning, at least I am. So you've, you've got quite a broad remit We've got our views as to what we see is really happening now in this space. What is it for you? What's your thesis? What, what are you sort of 
most interested in as you look into 2024? Yeah, so when we look at opportunities, we are very thesis-led, meaning that we, we do spend our time developing a point of view forming a set of hypotheses, and that's really what's shaped our priorities and, and shaped our focus areas. We have three main strategic themes that we look at. Data and AI is the first one, which I can delve into a little bit shortly. Resilience, and that's really around how can QBE work better with our customers, with our brokers to make, make our customers more resilient, so helping them with that. And finally, growth and emerging markets, so really trying to support the, the longer-term growth agenda of the organisation. And there's obviously some specific areas that, that we focus on uh, to support that. If we start with, with data and AI, core to this theme really is how does QBE become more intelligent? Right? How do we become more efficient and better leverage emerging technology to reimagine the, the value chain, right? whether that's underwriting or claims? And so you know, areas of interest for us include you know, automation and workflow, new data sources or insights for risk that allow us to make better decisions, a good example of that is geospatial data, right? So how can we bring that into property underwriting? How can that support our post-cat claims uh, event and post-claims response? This theme is actually also looking at the uh, supporting the organization's broader approach to AI and, and generative AI in particular. So we're supporting by really looking at how we might be able to use the mechanisms that we have to establish a, an ecosystem of partners that allow us to work together to co-create applications or use cases for the technology, but in doing so in a way that actually can position us uh, or differentiate how we go to market. So rather than just have a look at the same technology that is available to everyone, how can we bring various partners together? How can we look at creating something that may provide that point of differentiation? Um, so that's a big focus for us now. Can I just jump in there, James, because there's just a couple of pieces on that. Just Resilience sounds like the way you're describing it. Risk management, is that also including sustainability and related to climate? Because people often add that into the resilience. The theme of resilience is, yeah, is really focused on really about risk prevention and mitigation. So working with our risk solutions team globally starts having a think about how can we improve our value proposition that really centers on helping businesses become stronger, identifying new risks, uh, how they respond to those risks, and ultimately you know, improving their resilience. So whether that's cyber risk, supply chain risk, supporting things like business continuity. We're starting to have a think about what role does QBE play and how can we offer these services in a way that adds real value and, and really starts to drive in that growth and all that improvement and resiliency. But there is also the ESG angle. There is a sustainability angle there too and, and having a look at things like uh, climate change and its impacts, having a look at new products like renewable energies and, and supporting that agenda too. And then I want to come back to the generative AI point. No podcast or article these days doesn't mention generative AI. And actually, that's probably the right thing given, given how fundamentally it's changing what we do. But we're all now looking to see what is really going to make a difference soon because lot, what we're learning, all of us, is this is often more complicated. Regulatory factors need to get taken into account. What's your favorite pick for 2024 where you see we'll really be making a difference and getting the best of, the best benefits from generative AI? Yeah, I, well, I can certainly reference, I think, where we started at QBE with that to answer that question, because we went through a process of looking at use cases where we felt there was immediate application. We came back with about 170 of them straight off the bat, collectively sourced from across the organization. And where we started was in that submission space. And I, and I from what I've read, there's, there's certainly a lot of companies looking at that. So really trying to improve the efficiency with which submissions are processed and triaged at the moment, in some lines of business, underwriters can look at just a fraction of what comes in. 
So the ability to be able to ingest those, immediately apply underwriting guidelines and portfolio strategy, to be able to really then point the right submissions towards the underwriter that, that A, they think they can best chance of winning, but also those that are most aligned to to our strategy going forward. So, so I think that's one where we're going to move beyond pilot, beyond testing, and really start to scale across product lines in the organization. It's one immediate use case that I see tremendous value. And any companies you can name that are offering that you've come across? Yeah. Yes, there is. I think we have a look at Satoru in our portfolio, who, you know, in, in terms of really working to improve that that submission and that triage up front. They've obviously got some great experience in doing that. Then we can have a look at some of the, the new companies that are coming through, companies like Sixfold, that are already ha- taking it, sort of that end-to-end underwriting view and how that can be optimized. I think a, a lot of opportunity lies in, in what they've built in the submissions process there as well. And then James, gets back to your list of three. So the third one or the third area you talked about was was growth or markets that are growing and emerging risks. What are you seeing in there that's particularly interesting? This is one area where, where we've worked heavily with the business and, and spent a lot of time working with identifying new markets and, and starting to then think about how we how we look at those and how we approach those. And so cyber is a really, really good example. It's a market that we've, you know, had previously traditionally shied away from. We've now got a, a strong growth strategy. We've got a global head of cyber. And so we've been working really closely with, with Serene, who's leading that team, to start to have a look at, you know, how we dig into that and how do we start to scale into that market. A second growth opportunity we were doing a lot of work with is in the embedded space. So we do think there's a, a huge opportunity there. So we've started to work with with our Australian business actually to start to have a look at embedded opportunities. And I think that's going to be a key part of our longer term growth strategy there. So that isn't clearly important for you. What are the areas you're seeing that have sort of been most successful in the companies you're working with for embedded? It is a big opportunity embedded. It is an important part of our growth strategy, as I said, particularly in Australia where, where we're starting. It's an opportunity to engage with customers in an environment that they trust. It will allow us to start to offer something, I believe, that's that's more fit for purpose and that ultimately over time we'll, we'll start to leverage new data points, new proxies for risk, and be able to, I feel better, address some of their unmet needs. For QBE, as I said, the opportunity presented itself in Australia and, and, and specifically with small business insurance, actually. So we were going straight into the commercial lines route. We chose that because we have a very strong brand in that region and we have a very strong market share in terms of small business insurance and and presence in the market. And we began to explore digital distribution opportunities that would allow us not only distribute insurance via these SaaS platforms, but work with a software company in a way that will really try to provide a much more flexible approach to how they distribute insurance. And so we had very unique needs for this in the sense of our existing technology stack, some of the partners we wanted to work with, some of the the things that we really needed as part of a solution. So coming back to the point before around build versus buy, this was an example where we spent a lot of time looking at the platform as a service company, some of the insurtech platforms that are out there and doing some great things in the embedded space and facilitating that. But everywhere we looked, it wasn't quite right in the sense of what we specifically needed. And so what we ended up doing was then working with the tech, the insurance arm of, of a technology vendor. And we found that them coming together with one or two insurtechs allowed us to build something that's much more fit for purpose. It's about to launch in quarter one this year, so I can't sort of share too much beyond that. But then through that process, we've also identified with that technology 
there are a load of other use cases across the business that we can point that towards, particularly areas that are probably a little bit hamstrung by legacy or they're not up higher up the priority list in terms of transformation. And so we found, you know, through that build mechanism, we've now got, you know, lots of other things that we can point that technology at, uh, which is going to be, you know, really exciting to see how that develops over the course of the year. Good. Well, well, do let us know when you're ready to launch. We can always take things under under embargo until they go, but I will drum roll and tentahooks to see who you're working with on that one. Now, I'm sure you and your team are getting emails daily from companies wanting to work with you. So for anybody that wants to talk to QBE, some tips on like what kind of people you found you're most successful working with and how should they best present themselves to you so they stand out, don't waste your time, don't waste their time? There's a couple of things we always look for. It does differ depending on obviously the stage of the company and and the type of project that we're looking at or, the, or I guess the depth of the of the potential partnership. But if we're looking at a Series A, for example, then generally speaking, first and foremost, we, we want to see an energy and a passion. We want them to know and be crystal clear on the problem that they're solving and that they've got a clear vision. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of changing. There's going to be a lot of change, but but to understand sort of, or, or to be able to see from them what their roadmap looks like, what, what their ultimate vision is. That's first and foremost what we want to see. Shortly after that, there needs to be a, a clear secret source. What are they doing that's different that sets them apart from their peers? How do they explain that? And ultimately, how sustainable is their business model? So they're sort of two things that we look for regardless. I think one of the things that really stands out from the, the founders that we've had most success working with is it relates to culture and, and in particularly a way of working that's very much centered around collaboration. Okay, so I think very early on we saw a lot of founders who thought they knew everything, who thought they, you know, had solved all of the world's problems. And, and what we found now, those companies that have been most successful have taken a much more collaborative approach. They've come in, they've taken a lot of time working with the business, listening to the business, understanding how their product and, and their software works. And so we really look for a strong understanding of the industry, but a, you know, a strong desire to learn more and to work together and recognize that it's not just simply a consumption of a service, it's a longer term partnership. And that if we get that right, then there's huge amounts of value that could be added. So that's really what we look for. We do tend to have a strong skew towards InsureTech, but one of the areas that we are looking at too, and, and it comes back down to the generative AI piece too, is, is we're looking at a lot of software companies or technology companies that have managed to achieve success in other verticals. And as part of their roadmap, they want to move into financial services. They want to move into insurance. And that's an opportunity where QBE can be a lighthouse customer or certainly help them develop their product and, and make it fit for purpose for, for the needs of our industry. So that's another piece that we look at. What are those sorts of opportunities and can we create something new? Yeah, and that's for us, that's also a fascinating area. I mean, we've got companies like CGGs, the French energy company, Geosmart, doing things in flood, where they've actually solved problems elsewhere and are now realizing that insurance is a good place to go to their data. And then, James, in your portfolio, you've, to me, it looks like you've got a mixture of like what I call pure technology plays and MGAs. You benefit in slightly different ways from those. From the technology companies, you benefit because it can help great efficiencies or you mentioned earlier about you know, helping people make decisions for the business plus the investment side the mga is actually giving you a distribution mechanism that you can then allocate capacity to for the core business do you have a sort of particular bias when it comes to like an mga such as demex versus you mentioned Cytora, for example as a technology company in how you split the portfolio between those two different categories of i guess two different categories of insurtech we don't have a specific portfolio strategy around how that's split we, we've definitely favored 
or deployed more capital towards the technology side of things as opposed to the MGA side of things. One of the things as a large carrier is always difficult to strike that balance between, you know, supporting an MGA when, you know, there's always that competitive tension or that competitive threat. It's something though that I think as an organization that we're definitely maturing our approach towards. We're starting now to look much more broadly at, at emerging MGAs and and the role they can play in in helping us learn and helping us access new markets and and really being a, a very valuable part of a, a broader innovation strategy. So I can certainly foresee greater investment towards MGAs in the future. But initially based on the on the portfolio that we have now, we've we very much focus on the technology and really having a look at either sort of workflow and, and infrastructure plays like Cytora or Hyperscience. Um, but also Clara, but also focusing on more recently, new data, new intelligence. So we've had a, a heavy focus on geospatial where we've made investments in in both TensorFlight and Geosite, where we see just fantastic application of, of new intelligence, new insights to, to underwriting decisions, help us improve our under, understanding of, of the property assets that we're underwriting and the risks that are most prevalent for those assets. But also what we found with Geosite in particular, the biggest application has actually been in our claims response, particularly to to major CAT events, where we can leverage their platform to not only have a really clear understanding of of the exact location of each of our assets, so geocoding and, and making sure that's all working properly, but we've also then been able to have, you know, through the course of an event, be a flood or a, a cyclone, We've been able to use that technology to then uh, keep constant track of what's happening to our risks, what's happening to our exposures, and then, um, you know, apply flood depths, apply wind speeds. And Geosite allows you to source all of that data from multiple sources and bring that to the point where our claims teams have that at their fingertips as they're on the ground, as they're starting to work through the events immediately after the the flood or the, the cyclone has hit. So we see huge application to be able to, you know, ready our supply chain more quickly, to get our customers, you know, across what's happening and be able to start the settlement and the fixed process or the make good process. So huge application there. Good. Well, we've uh, had both uh, Rachel from Geosite and Jakob from TensorFlight on the podcast and a number of other companies offering services in this geospatial area. And actually TensorFlight, of course, out of, out of Europe, providing services over the US uh, around the world as well. But, you know, it was nice to see some European companies coming through. So those who want to get their in, their Instec podcast fixed, plenty more out there on that on that topic. And then you mentioned earlier on about you're looking for problems to solve within the business. And certainly you know, my observation has been the difference between organizations that have got an innovation arm and or a venture arm that succeed versus those that don't succeed is that connection to the business unit and really getting business sponsors. Underwriters are busy. They tend to get judged based on what they're doing in the next 12 months can often be hard to get them to focus on things that are new. What, what have you done within QBE to be able to find people that can be your supporters and not just tell you what the problems are, but actually also go through the whole process of working with your your the companies you're investing in and actually giving them a chance to, to be successful? Yeah, so one, one of the things we focused on quite early was, was creating this venture community through QBE. So what we call sort of the coalition of the willing, right? So key stakeholders from across the business who we find you know, they have a clear appetite for innovation. They bring the right mindset to it and they're really active and keen to support not only how we work with portfolio companies, but obviously then bringing them into the organization and making that that partnership a success. But it's definitely been an eye-opening journey even in the three years since I've been at QBE. I think we've had some pockets of areas in the business 
so pick our claims teams or our North American crop team where they are just purely innovative. If I pick the claims teams, for example, a couple of our investments have actually stemmed from partnerships that they've started and innovations they've worked on. So they've been hugely instrumental to our early success at QBE. Outside of those areas, there was actually very little appetite initially three years ago. So, And where there was appetite, it was always really difficult because there, there wasn't the resources available. Uh, there wasn't much bandwidth and, you know, in hindsight, there was no real sort of incentivization or, or motivation for anyone to innovate. I think fast forward three years now, and, and personally, it feels like a completely different um, conversation. There's appetite, there's a growing knowledge of innovation, there's a recognition of its importance. I think Gen AI and, and the, the AI bubble, if you like, has really sort of acted as a bit of a catalyst for that more recently too. A lot of people now are sitting up and, and wanting to be part of the conversation and, and, and be, be involved in, in what we're doing. In terms of one of the things that we're doing, I mentioned before around, you know, making QBE startup ready and, and really wanting to improve how we work with startups. We are having a look at trying to take a lot of what we've built to help our portfolio companies succeed and, and think about how we can point that into the organization more broadly. So if an underwriter has an idea, big or small, that they want to experiment with, they want to take to market, at the moment, we don't have the resources in the organization to facilitate that. So we're, we're working closely with the right parts of the business to, to bring together that infrastructure to make that available to underwriters, to claims folks, to anyone across the business who who has ideas, who wants to take something new to market. And there's been some fantastic learnings that we've seen from the likes of Chaucer and Beasley and Tokyo Marine around, you know, whether it's digital underwriting or innovation more broadly, you know, there's certainly lots of learnings that we can take from those companies around how you do that, how you do that at scale. And with Beasley, you haven't just taken inspiration. You found your... Uh your CEO there with Andrew Horton who yeah, joined a couple right. of years ago. And of course, Beasley, for those that don't know them, uh, and I first came across them correctly 25 years ago when there were just a few people in a room. I mean, they've they've actually been a great example of, from a lawyer's point of view, of sort of building a business on innovation. But what, what has been the impact on QBE with Andrew joining and I guess partly for your role as well? Yeah, I mean, he, he started in September 2021. And I think on day two, we held our first venture investment committee. Um, he had committed before joining that he would really support and help ventures be part of the innovation agenda. And we hit him up on day two to to attend a board meeting and to start to approve some of the things that we were looking at. He's been super supportive from day one for ventures. He he sits on our investment committees, as I said. He, he drives a lot of that discussion and he's a real advocate for change across the business. So I, I think... More broadly, he's he's worked with the executive and we've got innovation now front and center of the vision statement for the company. And there's now a much greater focus on how we can bring innovation uh, to life across the organization. And, you know, whether that's just empowering some of our team members to just to fix a process and it's, you know, it's really incremental or, or small change right up to the examples that we had in Embedded or some of the bigger things that we've been looking at that are potentially you know, more disruptive or more longer term. He's really happy to support a lot of that. And we always find him asking really difficult questions, but it's done with the intent of really making sure that we, we've done our homework and that um, we're giving everything a fair go. And yeah, he's been he's been a fantastic advocate since he's come in. Well, I'm like, quite like coming from a financial background as well. I think he trained as an accountant. And actually a quick plug for Saitora, you talked a bit about one of your portfolio companies. Juan de Castro was interviewing uh, Andrew Horton recently on the podcast. For those, so for those who want to know a little bit more about Andrew, I strongly recommend that as well. Uh, it's that time of year, James, where people are making their predictions for 2024, and we'd quite like to come back and test these or review them. So 
be warned. Uh, so we'll ask you to have a whole long list, but what do, what do you see going into 2024 that uh, is that's, that's what's encouraging as you look out there? I think 2024 from an investment perspective, just at a high level, is going to be another difficult year. 2023 was was quite turbulent. We had obviously Silicon Valley Bank. We had sort of the IPO markets remain predominantly closed. And so really until they open up, I, I think it's going to be tricky for founders. It's going to be tricky for investors to, to deploy too much capital. We do think a lot of startups are going to have to raise in 2024. I do think though that if you've managed to demonstrate growth, if you start to show really strong traction in the market, if you're really clear on the problems that you're solving, you know, coming back to my points earlier, and uh, clear on what your secret source is, I, I don't think you're going to have any problems. And I think we saw that pretty recently with Hyper Exponentials, you know, big raise, top tier venture capital coming in to support them on their next journey, which was absolutely fantastic to see. So we're going to see good companies be able to raise. But I, you know, I do think on some spots, we're going to see some companies struggling a little bit. I think what that will mean is more M&A. I do think we're going to see some consolidation in some areas. I think we will see some companies really have to slow down or cease, which which is, isn't ever great. But I think in terms of where the market had got to in 2021, I think ultimately it's good in the longer term for the for the market. I think for us, and we, we needed one deal in 2023, and, and we haven't announced it yet. We're certainly seeing a lot of activity for us coming into 2024. So we, you know, while the markets might remain relatively quiet for us in particular, we're seeing a lot of things come to head now, which will be really, really exciting. So whether that's in cyber, whether that's embedded, whether that's looking at and really helping support the AI agenda across the organization, we've got lots of our focus areas now that will culminate in, in a number of investments and a number of partnerships being made. I'm particularly keen to see how the AI bubble moves into 2024 or moves through 2024. I think one thing that some market commentators are really excited about is, is, you know, it's that period sort of one year, one to two years after a new technology is introduced where you start to see the next shift, the next stage and some really high quality startups come. And I think we're going to get that in 24 and the start of that, uh, start of 25. So we're really keen to watch that space. I think it's going to be a, a huge area for insurance. And yeah, we're keeping our eyes open. Yeah, I mean, that hyper exponential funding, $73 million, Adreesen Harowitz, Battery Ventures, you know, d should give us a bit of enthusiasm going into the year. I mean, they went out, got clients, got revenue, kind of did it what I call the old-fashioned way. And there's quite a nice thread that links all these together because with the support of, of Hyper Exponential and Sidetora and Guidewire and Google Cloud, we are uh, backing Google offices. Actually, James, you and I actually first met face-to-face -face in New York in on March the 14th. And uh, you know, like all things in insurance, there's a thread that connects all those together because... Battery Ventures, one of the partners of Battery Ventures is Marcus Ryu, who was previously founder of Guidewire, now sits on Hyper Exponential, Hyper Exponential and Saitora working together. And uh, we're all going to get together in New York and hopefully have some of your colleagues in the in the audience as well. So uh, and I'm very enthusiastic about you know, the reality coming through and you know, inevitably, and actually, as you know, part of investing, there are going to be companies that don't make it through. That's the nature of VC investing. But I feel we're starting to see reality coming back to the level that is appropriate and companies that uh, deserve to get funds and will, I'm pretty sure, use them appropriately will do it. So I, sort of share, I share, your, share your enthusiasm. And then finally, as, as we wrap up, and I know this is going to be a longer episode because there's so much great stuff in there. So apologies to those of you on your bike or out for a run and, and or on your commute and have felt you had to keep going, but hopefully you found this useful. Uh, we're really thankful, James, for your support from QBE. You remember, you've also 
you get kudos from everybody because you support things like our wine tasting event, which, uh, as someone said, gosh, a lot of grown-ups turning up for this event. But why? You've got choices how you spend your money. You don't need to go market yourself. People are knocking on your door. So why why are you supporting us? As you said before, I, I listen to the, the pod frequently, and, and I can certainly concur with what everyone has said in the past around the breadth of the community, the quality of the content. I think specifically for me, what stands out is is the actual, I find the content just so real. I know we've talked about this in the past, but by that I, I read something and it's not just simply rhetoric or, you know, motherhood statements. It's always real world examples. It's content that I can immediately apply back to, you know, the business case and building or the thesis we're developing internally or real world examples that just uh, provide that sort of tangible point of evidence. And whether it's sort of, you know, Henry's articles on Gen AI or the parametric post, you know, that kind of content I haven't been able to find anywhere else. So, so we're avid readers as well as listeners. So uh, keep going and we'll keep supporting. Thanks. Well, I did actually insult my research team by suggesting they need to start writing in the start of the Daily Mail uh, content to make it sort of digestible and easy to read for people not quite as smart as you, James. But it's great to hear that. And my final question is, uh, how's it been being on the other side of the podcast? It's still intimidating. <laughs> it's still scary. But no, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I might have to go at this again. We've got so much on. I think it was be, it's been great to be able to share what we've done to date. And I think now we can probably be a little bit more specific going forward in, in being able to showcase and share some of the, the specific opportunities we're working on and our portfolio company portfolio in a little bit more detail. So uh, thank you for having me. No, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking to you uh, in these lovely surroundings. Um, it's not on video, but I think every podcast studio I've been in seems to have like a purple backlighter in here. So uh, it's good to see we've got the purple backlighter. We'll have it on video soon. Uh, but James, there you get back to everything you've got going on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, wasn't that great? Now you can find out all you need to know about QBE and about us at Instec on www.instec.co. And of course, all our new members and look out special treat coming for you on that website very soon. And of course, you can contact me, Matthew Grant, Robin Mertens, or any of us on LinkedIn or by email, hello at instec.co. Now check out the episode notes as well, because we have got a new feature. If you'd like to record a message or a question for a future podcast, then this could be your chance to get on air. Just look for the link, take you straight towards a uh, recording on your phone. Anyway, that's it. We're done.